morning, everybody. This is a picture, a photograph of my mum. I don't know about you, but I would quite like to have my life with all the good bits in it, but with the suffering taken out. Imagine if I said to you that on my parents' first ever date, they were standing on a bridge over the River Thames in London. And my dad says to my mum, what's that ring you've got on your finger? And my mum says, oh, it's nothing. It's just, I mean, I quite like the look of it. Actually, my previous boyfriend, my old boyfriend, he gave me this ring. It doesn't mean anything to me, but I just, I guess I wear it because I quite like the look of it. My dad says, oh, okay, let's have a look. My mum takes off the ring. She shows it to my dad. But without looking at that ring, my dad chucks it off the bridge into the River Thames, never to be seen again. And let's imagine that my mum responds to this by laughing. She thinks it's funny. She thinks it's brave, heroic, romantic, kind of, hey, he's saying, I'm the guy for you. You don't need that other boyfriend anymore. But don't you think that it's equally likely that my mum could have reacted negatively? It's equally likely that she could have reacted by saying, what an arrogant so-and-so you are. I mean, I just told you that I like that ring. You've chucked it off the bridge. For all you know, that ring was actually quite valuable and now you've chucked it away. Do you know what? This is our first ever date. I'm not sure that I will give you a second date. I think I might go back to the previous boyfriend. Now let's imagine that I ask my mum, by the way, I ask my mum, who was the previous boyfriend? And she says, oh, well, actually, as it happens, he became a multi-millionaire. In fact, he became a billionaire. But the funny thing about it was, he became a billionaire, but he gave all his money to his son. I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, wow, if you had got together with him, then I would have been your son, then I would have become a billionaire, and that means if I had been a billionaire, that would have removed quite a lot of the suffering from my life. But hang on a minute. I've just made a mistake, haven't I? Because that union of Angela Burton, the lady in this picture, and the billionaire, that son is not Adrian Holloway. That son is not me. In the world that I have just imagined with less suffering, in that world, I don't exist. I've just imagined myself out of existence. Now, what if Christianity is true? If Christianity is true, 
then the God who really exists truly loves you in particular and truly loves me in particular. Therefore, God creates the world in which you in particular exist, in which I in particular exist. And so in the world that I've imagined with less suffering, I don't exist. What if God wanted you and me to exist and that's why he created the world that he did? While you're thinking about that, while you're thinking about that interesting possibility, let's watch a video. If God is all loving, he prefers a world without suffering. So, if an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, it follows that suffering does not exist. Since suffering obviously does exist, the atheist concludes that God must not exist. But are the atheist's two hidden assumptions necessarily true? Consider the first assumption. Can God create any world he wants? What if he wants a world populated by people who have free will? It's logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. Forcing free choices is like making a square circle. It's not logically possible. It's not that God lacks the power to perform the task. It's that the supposed task itself is just nonsense. So, it may not be feasible to create a world populated by people who always freely choose to do what is morally good. So the first assumption is not necessarily true. Therefore, the argument fails. And what about the second assumption? Is it necessarily true that God would prefer a world without suffering? How could we possibly know this? We all know of cases where we permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. If it's even possible that God allows suffering in order to achieve a greater good, then we cannot say this assumption is necessarily true. For the logical problem of suffering to succeed, the atheist would have to show that it's logically impossible that free will exists and that it's logically impossible that God has good reasons for permitting suffering. This burden of proof is too heavy to bear. It's quite possible that God and suffering both exist. This is why philosophers, even atheist philosophers, have given up on the logical problem of evil. We can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of a theistic god. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. It's now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical argument is bankrupt. But this is hardly the end of the discussion. We still need to explore the probability version of the problem of evil. Okay. In the summer of 2016, our second eldest daughter, Bethany, went on holiday to the south of France with her best friend from school, 
Natasha Ednan Laparus. And at Heathrow Airport, Tashi bought a sandwich from Pret-a-Manger, and on the plane, Tashi had an allergic reaction to the sesame seeds in the sandwich. Now, Tashi knew that she was allergic to sesame seeds, but Pret-a-Manger hadn't labeled the sandwich to say that it had allergens in it. Sadly, Tashi died on that British Airways flight. So, Tanya and Nad lost their daughter, and Bethany, my daughter, had the trauma of watching her best friend die on the flight in the seat next to her. Now, can I just ask, as we're talking along here, how many of you here in the tents have actually heard something about this story? Could you just raise your hand? Okay, most of you have, maybe you've seen it on the news or you've heard something about it. Now, I will share at the end of this little talk, I'll share the end of this story in terms of what happened next. But suffice to say that for me, before I became a Christian, suffering was my biggest objection to Christianity. I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. And still today, especially since Tash's tragic death, I have been asking this question. In a nutshell, our question is something like this. Surely, if God is all good, he would want to prevent suffering. And if he's all powerful, he would be able to stop suffering. So, seeing as suffering exists, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God exist? I'd like to look this morning at four perspectives on suffering, and the first of them is free will. Why does God allow suffering? The question presupposes that God exists. What do we think that this God should do? Well, God chose the high-risk option. God chose not to create robotic people. Instead, God chose to create free moral agents who can make real choices. Why? What is to be gained by having free will? God's answer is genuine love. There is a direct between free will and love. I discovered this for myself in the summer of 1995 when I fell in love with a marine biologist called Julia Brown. But the whole thrill of it was that she chose to love me back. She could very easily have chosen not to. She could very easily have chosen someone else, but she didn't, she chose me, and that's why it was exciting. Robots can't fall in love. If God is powerful enough to stop suffering and then chooses not to, there presumably must be a reason. There must be a reason why, in his opinion at least, it's worth allowing suffering. What if God wants there to be real love in the world? And because he wants real love, that means he wants to give us freedom of choice. 
But what's even harder to talk about are natural disasters. An event like the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia, because here an earthquake was to blame. Now, I wouldn't go on and say what I'm about to say to anybody who's actually suffered personally the effects of an earthquake, but if you or I had to write a report about why it happened, the bottom line is that the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami happened because our planet is made up of absolutely enormous tectonic plates which grate against each other. But if it weren't for plate tectonics, we wouldn't be here we would still have a water world. Without plate tectonics, the continents would never have formed. Inside the Earth, we've got all this hot molten metal. That is what makes the Earth magnetic. The Earth's magnetism creates the Earth's atmosphere, both of which have to be exactly as they are in order for there to be any human life on the surface of our planet. But on the other hand, all the heat in the Earth's core would make our planet explode unless there's a release mechanism. Earthquakes are the release mechanism. The hot magnetic metal in our planet's core generates our atmosphere. And without the protection of our radiation shield, which is sustained by the movement of the molten core in the Earth, Without that, the solar winds would kill everyone on Earth. There'd be no radiation shield without earthquakes. But look, come on, there's no getting away from it. There's no escape from it. Natural disasters are appalling. They leave us crying out, why? And anyone who is not deeply moved by the scenes on the TV news must have a heart of stone. A second perspective on suffering is that God sometimes works through suffering to bring about good. For some reason, people think the Bible promises that in this life, it'll all be lovely. No, no, the Bible does not say that in this life, it'll all be wonderful. Okay, let's look now at our second video. This argument attempts to show that since suffering and evil exist, it is logically impossible for God to exist. And we explained why even atheist philosophers admit that this argument fails. But wait, it may still be argued that while it's logically possible that God and suffering both exist, it's far from likely. There's just so much pointless suffering, it seems improbable that God could have good reasons for permitting it. This is the probability version of the problem. Suffering provides empirical evidence that God's existence is not impossible, just highly unlikely. Is this a good argument? Consider three points. First, we are not in a position to say with any confidence that God probably lacks reasons for allowing the suffering in the world. The problem is that we're limited in space and time and in intelligence and insight. God, on the other hand, sees every detail of history from beginning to end and orders it through people's free decisions and actions. In order to achieve his purposes, 
God may have to allow a great deal of suffering along the way. Suffering which appears pointless within our limited scope of understanding may be seen to have been justly permitted by God within his wider framework. Sometimes what we experience makes no sense until we gain a wider perspective and see the big picture designed by the Creator. Here's the second point. Relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence may well be probable. You see, probabilities are always relative to background information. For example, if we consider only how much this man weighs, we would say it's highly improbable that he's a world-class athlete. But when we're willing to consider new information, that he's a professional sumo wrestler and a world champion, we quickly revise our view. In the same way, when the atheist claims that God's existence is improbable, we should ask, improbable relative to what background information? If we consider only the suffering in the world, then God's existence may very well appear to be improbable. But if we're willing to look at the full scope of background information to take into account the powerful arguments for God's existence, we may come to a very different conclusion. The third point is, Christianity entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and suffering. Consider four of these. First, the chief purpose of life is not happiness. People often assume that if God exists, his role is to create a comfortable environment for his human pets. They think the ultimate goal of our lives on earth is happiness, and therefore, God is obligated to keep us happy. However, Christianity presents a radically different view that the purpose of life is to know God. This alone brings true, lasting fulfillment. Suffering can bring about a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God, either on the part of the one who is suffering or those around him. The whole point of human history is that God Having given us free will, is drawing as many people as he can into his unending kingdom. Suffering is one of the ways God can draw people freely to himself. In fact, countries that have endured the most hardship often show the highest growth rates for Christianity. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Second, mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose. Terrible human evils are testimony to man's depravity, a consequence of his alienation from God. The Christian isn't surprised at moral evil in the world. On the contrary, he expects it. The third doctrine states that God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. This world is just the beginning, the entryway to an unimaginable, never-ending life beyond death's door. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, underwent afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, hunger. Yet he wrote, We do not lose heart, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison.
because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul understood that life on earth and whatever suffering it holds for each of us is temporary. Our pain will not endure forever, but our lives with God will. Paul was not belittling the plight of those who suffer horribly in this life. Indeed, he was one of them. But he saw that those suffering will be overwhelmed forever by the ocean of joy that God will give to those who will freely receive it. And the fourth doctrine is this. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good. Knowing God is the ultimate fulfillment of human existence, an infinite good. Thus, the person who knows God, no matter how much he has suffered, can still say, God is good to me. So, if Christianity is true, it's not at all improbable that suffering and evil should exist. In summary, for all these reasons, the probability version of the problem of evil is no more successful than the logical version. As a purely intellectual problem, then, the problem of evil does not disprove God's existence. But even if those intellectual arguments fail, the emotional problem of suffering and evil remains very powerful. If you have suffered deeply, or if you've watched someone you love go through intense pain, you may be thinking, so what if God exists? Why would I want to respond to Him or worship Him? I feel cold and empty and want nothing to do with him. You're not alone. God knows your name. He knows who you are and what you're going through. God promises to be with you through your suffering. He can give you the strength to endure. Jesus Christ also suffered. Although he was innocent, he was tortured and sentenced to death. His suffering had a purpose, to provide you and me with a life-giving connection to God. Not only does God exist, but He loves you. He seeks after you. He offers you hope. And in time, He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Okay, wonderful. Let's now move on to a third perspective on suffering, which is that God is not immune from suffering. He suffered too. Hey, I wouldn't want anyone in this tent to get the impression that Christians are trying to get God off the hook for suffering because God put himself on the hook. God put himself on the cross. Have you ever heard the poem, The Long Silence? It goes like this. At the end of time, Billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups 
near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young girl. She ripped open her sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture and death, she said. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in the world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered most, a Jew, someone from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child, and in the center of the plain, they consulted together with each other, and at last, they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew, they said. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think that he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured, flogged, scourged with a whip, mocked, spat at, then let him be totally alone, deserted, and then in extreme agony, let him die, they said. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long Silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. The Christian answer to suffering is a person. It's not an answer as such, it's a person. Hey, if I am suffering, I have got a personal problem, I need a personal answer. As it happens, God is a someone and not a something. In that sense, when we think of the worst moments of our lives, 
In that sense, Jesus has been there. Are you broken? Jesus was broken on the cross. Are you rejected by your friends? Jesus was rejected by his friends. Are you hated for no good reason? Jesus was hated for no good reason. And when we cry out and we complain, I can't take it anymore. We can think of Jesus suffering on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is more than an explanation. Jesus is a person. Hey, if next week I am told that my wife and four kids have all died in a car crash, I don't know if I will ever find in this life an adequate explanation for what happened. But I do believe that God has left me with something more satisfying than an explanation. God has left me with a person, a person called Jesus. And maybe you're here today and when all is said and done, something evil happened to you. I know that nothing that's been said today will take away the pain. It's also true that something evil happened on a hill outside Jerusalem in around 33 AD when an innocent man called Jesus was murdered. But God brought something brilliant out of that tragedy. God allowed the suffering of his own son because he knew that through it something wonderful could be achieved. At the time, Jesus' disciples thought it was a disaster. Their hero has been executed. All their hopes and dreams are all in tatters. They had no idea that through dying on the cross, Jesus was solving the biggest problem they had. He was solving the biggest problem that I have, the problem of sin. Fourthly and finally, God more than compensates for our suffering. Can any of us really begin to imagine what it would be like, how marvelous it would be to have millions of years of ecstasy? What would it be like for you to live in heaven forever in a place where every day is better than the one before. Anyway, those are four perspectives on suffering. And at the end of this talk, somebody says, Adrian, um, thanks, but it's just not good enough. As it happens, I agree. But it seems to me that at the cross of Christ, on that day at least, we can see how a God of love could allow suffering. Because on that day, let's just spin back through the four points we've made. Firstly, we see the results of human freedom. It was human decisions, human freedom that put Jesus on the cross. A small group of men deliberately denied Jesus a fair trial. A man called Pontius Pilate chose to have Jesus flogged and crucified. We see the results of human freedom in that evil decision. Secondly, we see God working through suffering. When Jesus was dying, God seemed to have deserted Jesus. But actually, everything that happened on that day had been planned by God centuries before. In the Old Testament, 
which was finished 400 years before Jesus was even born, we have documents that predicted what happened on that day. Psalm 41 verse 9 predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend, in this case, Judas. Isaiah 50 verse 6 said that the Messiah would be struck and spat upon. Also predicted in the Old Testament was the price for which Judas would betray Jesus, the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 verse 12. The next verse in Zechariah rightly predicts that that money would be used to buy a potter's field. Psalm 22 verse 18 predicts that at the foot of the cross, the soldiers would cast lots for Jesus' clothing and so on. My point is that the suffering was real, the injustice was real, but it was all planned. Jesus fulfilled 29 prophecies on the day that he died. So clearly, on that day at least, God was working through suffering. Thirdly, we can see that on the cross, God wasn't immune from suffering. He suffered too. And folks, as I close this talk, I think that this third point on the screen is the most helpful point of all. If Christianity is true, then the God who really exists can relate to what I'm going through. Christians worship a God who saw the drama of human suffering and decided to dive in and suffer too. Fourthly and lastly on the cross, we see that God more than compensates for our suffering. Could it be that one day from heaven, you will look back on your earthly life and you will think, do you know what? Now I'm here in heaven. I think I'd say it was all worth it after all. Could it be that one day from heaven you'll look back through all the tears, all the emotional pain, all the physical pain? Could it be that from a place in heaven you will say that God has more than compensated for my suffering? So in conclusion, we don't have a God who just folds his arms and looks down impassively from heaven at human suffering. No, we have a God who saw how bad it was and dived in and suffered with us. We have a suffering God. We have a crucified God. Just before I invite you to come and queue up and ask any questions, I did promise you at the start of the talk that I would tell you more about Alex, Tanya, and Nad, Ednan Laperouse. Two years before Tanya and Nad's daughter, Tashi, died on that British Airways flight to the south of France, it just so happens that two years before, through her friendship with our daughter, Bethany, Tashi had put her trust in Jesus Christ two years before she died. And then two months after, a few months after Tashi died, her brother Alex, who you can see on the left of this photo in the baptismal pool, Alex put his trust in Jesus Christ. Next, 
Tash's mum, Tanya, she put her trust in Christ. And then as you can see in this photograph, Tash's dad, Nadim, put his trust in Christ. So all three of them have become Christians. We have baptized all three of them. And so... If Tanya, Nad, and Alex were on the stage talking to you now, they would say to you that God so loved them that he allowed the suffering of God's one and only son, Jesus, so that Tanya, Nad, and Alex might have eternal life. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to stick around. Let's ask some questions. God bless you and thanks for your patience. Well done. Thank you so much. Okay, so we have 20 minutes. Please stick around. I'm pointing now to two microphones. You're very welcome to queue up and ask any question you want. I promise you at half past 12, I'll let you guys go. I'll answer any questions you might have as best you can. Uh, if you've got a question, just fire away. Go for it. First man to arrive, young man, go for it. Speak nice and loud. That's, go for it. Fantastic. Uh, what about the evidential problem of evil? So why is there so much of evil? So I might need it, but why is there so much? That's a great question. The question is about why is there so much evil? And I think what's behind the question is, you could make a case for how a loving God could allow suffering. Why is it necessary for there to be so much? It's a really good question to which I'm not sure I have a great answer. We could ask the same question about the suffering of Christ, which was the Christian response. It's not exactly an answer. It seems extraordinary, the degree of suffering that Jesus went through. Maybe that was God's response to how much suffering there is. If you could just imagine in your mind the worst possible death, the greatest humiliation to be cursed by God, if you're the son of God, in Jewish thinking, anyone who's hung on a cross is cursed. That's what the Old Testament says. It's almost like God saw how much suffering there was and then in his mind imagined the worst possible suffering that his son could ever have, brought it about in 33 AD to show us that he understands how bad suffering is. That is my response, but I appreciate that that is not actually an answer, but it's a great question. How about over here? Do you want to ask away? Um, one of the struggles that I have with suffering is the book of Job. So how God allowed, kind of almost like handed Job over to the devil to, like enabled him to take everything away. And then especially then at the end of the book where it says that, oh, then Job, ha Job had more um, children and, it was all, and he had, was like blessed more, almost as if like that then made up for the fact that he'd had, like his children had died, he'd had everything taken away from him. That was one of just the things I struggle with about suffering. Yeah, uh, so this is a great question um, about the book of Job. And I want to say, uh, I totally agree with you. I also really struggle reading the book of Job. And I'm also perplexed and mystified as to why God has let Job, Job go through all of this. And also, I'm particularly mystified by the very first bit, where the introduction explains what's going on between God and the devil. 
The benefit that we receive from the book of Job is that we read something, it's actually one of the oldest books, if not the first book to ever be written in the Bible, that we actually read something from a non-Western, non-modern mindset where the assumptions are completely different from the assumptions that we have today. So the reason why you and I struggle with Job is because of the culture that we're brought up in and what we think of as right. When you read the book of Job, there isn't actually an explanation of suffering, but there's this moment where God says, where were you when I, found, I founded the earth? Do you know how the wild donkey gives birth? And God starts to ask Job, where were you when you created the earth? In other words, God reminds us through the book of Job that, and frankly, we don't like this, but this is what the Bible says. If I am really God, then I can make any world that I want to. If I am supreme in the universe, then I'm a free moral agent. If I choose to make an earth which has land that goes so far, that's one of the questions God asked Job. Where were you when I decided where the boundaries of the land and the sea should be? Where were you, Job, when I made up my mind? Like, when I was thinking about how wild animals would give birth in the wild, where were you at that point? In other words, God is bringing our perspective. Hang on a minute. If God is really God, he would not be obliged to give us a rational explanation for suffering that makes sense to us. Now, we don't like that because we'd like to know the answer. But if God is God, then he could make any world he wants. But at least in Christianity, we can be confident that he hasn't just folded his arms and let us suffer, but that he can actually relate to our suffering and that he dives in. So again, not actually an answer to your question, but that's my best response. Another two brilliant questions. Let's go back to this side. What, what question do you have? Uh, what do you say to people who ask why there are sicknesses like the flu, COVID, and cancer? What do I, what do I say to those people? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I will sometimes uh, divide up different conditions there are some uh, natural evils, like we talked about earthquakes, for example, where we can actually see how there is some benefit that we receive from them. Um, another Christian response to sickness would be that actually, according to the Bible, now, I realize the person asking this question to you and me may well not accept the authority of the Bible, so our answer isn't gonna cut much mustard with them, but remember the whole question why would God allow suffering presupposes the existence of God. So if there is a God, then maybe there's a revelation from God. Maybe the Bible is a revelation from God. And in that revelation, now this will sound weird to our friend, sickness was not part of God's original plan. God creates free moral agents who can make real choices. If they choose to reject God's plan, then all sorts of other things could happen because they've moved away from God's plan and sickness is part of that. So that doesn't cut much mustard with the average person that we're talking to, but the most important thing about your question is that it draws the questioner back to the assumption behind the question. The assumption behind the question is that God exists. Another little aspect to your question is the question presupposes that God should do good things, but what if God doesn't exist? If God doesn't exist, is suffering a problem? You see, there's a moral argument for the existence of God. 
And the moral argument, you may well be familiar with this, goes like this. First premise. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. So let's imagine there's no God and let's imagine a world in which there's no police and I can drive wherever I want, as fast as I want, I can take any drugs I want, I can do anything that I want. If I know I'm never going to get caught, if there's no God, I can do what I want. Most people would agree with the first premise. The second premise is that objective moral values and duties do exist. So, for example, let me ask you to think now of the most disgusting, appalling behavior you can imagine. Probably we're all thinking of the same thing. Now let me say to you that a thousand years ago, or in a thousand years' time, that behavior would be acceptable. If that behavior is acceptable in the eyes of most people a thousand years from now, would that therefore make it okay? We think, no. That behavior will always be wrong at all times and in all places. Why do we think that? Because objective moral values and duties do exist. This is something not just that Christians think, Virtually everyone in Britain thinks that. When you thought about the most disgusting and horrible behavior ever, if you were to stop somebody in the street in Norwich now and say, in a thousand years' time, if that was considered to be okay, would that make it okay? Every single person in Norwich High Street would say, no, it wouldn't be okay. Because everybody thinks that objective moral values and duties do exist. So therefore, God exists. The very fact that people are asking this question, the very fact they're troubled by suffering, the very fact that they're troubled by evil suggests that they have got a line. There's some sort of assumption there. The reason they're calling the line crooked is because they've got some idea of what a straight line is. If there's a straight line, if there's a moral law, could it be there's a moral lawgiver? So actually, the question brings us to an argument for the existence of God. That's a very long response, but that's, that's actually sometimes what I do say in some settings. Thank you for your question. Okay, over here, we've got 10 minutes left. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I, I apologize in advance because it's a really long and difficult question, but it's been in my notes for a while, so I thought I'd ask. So it's in two parts. The first one is, uh, going back to what you said about free will, why is it that we can't have both free will and not suffering? Because surely if God removed our ability to sin, we'd still be able to choose all sorts of good things to do and say, uh, for example, I can't choose to become a unicorn whenever I want, but I can still choose what I want to do. And the second part is, um, in heaven, I assume we have free will and no suffering. So why couldn't God just put us in heaven in the first place and then save us the trouble, I guess? Okay, great questions, both of them. Um, Can I come to the second one first? Once again, we're back where we were with the first two questions, which is, my answer isn't actually an answer, but it's more of a Christian response. There is it seems to me a difference in heaven between the worship of angels and the worship of saved sinners. Now, this may not make a lot of odds to us, but this seems to be what the Bible presents. An angel worshiping God in heaven does not worship God from a position of, oh, I don't really deserve to be here. All the sins I've committed it's amazing I ever ended up here. How did I end up here? Oh, I ended up here because unbelievably Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth and died on a cross. He shouldn't have done that, but he did. And that means that I'm saved. But that's exactly how we will be motivated. So it might be that when we're in heaven worshiping God, we, are, we have that added dimension, that added fuel for our worship. 
Another response to your second question is that, going back to the previous question about Job, God can create any world he wants. Maybe God wants the worship of saved sinners. Maybe there's something about that that appeals to him. And maybe, going back to your first question, what if actually your first question is a non-question? What if it's actually impossible for God to have uh, people that he has created who have genuine choices and only ever choose good? I mean, let's just think about that for a moment. What, how would we conceive of someone who has genuine free will and always chooses to be good? That would be someone who never chooses wrong, who never sins. We don't know anyone like that except Jesus. Good question. How about over here? Go for it. Hey, yeah. Uh, so if I understand that you have free will... And you, have, and you can choose not to choose God. But if the ultimate happiness and goal in life is God, which I agree with, what about those people who have no access to God and don't have control over that? Oh, this is a great question, and I'm so glad you're asking it. Um, I guess it goes back to Andy McCulloch's talk earlier. There is an enormous responsibility for us to go and tell those who have yet to hear the good news about Jesus. However, it's important to bear in mind that in the early chapters of the book of Romans, we do get, particularly in Romans 1 and verse 20, we do get an idea that God has revealed himself in nature. So let's imagine I'm sitting on an island somewhere and I've never, let's imagine I've actually never met any humans apart from maybe my parents and they never told me about Jesus. I could work out, according to Romans 1, I could work out that there is a God from the created world around me. I could think, probably there's a God based upon the fact that all of this complex stuff exists. The most likely thing is that there's a creator rather than this is all just a total accident. But then I notice that I selfishness in my heart and evil in my heart and I do selfish things and behave in a selfish way and I feel bad about it and that begins to get me on a journey of realizing that I've sinned against God. Now you might wonder, let's think about, uh, for example, a a so-called closed Muslim nation. How do most people in a country like Iran become Christians? One of the main ways in the Muslim world that people actually are converted in a country where it's very difficult to meet a Christian, at least in public, is through dreams. And it seems to me that what's happening is that God reveals himself in nature. The person seeks God, not knowing the name of Jesus, thinking Christianity is not true, or at least they don't know about it. And then God sends them a dream. And these dreams are things like, in the dream you see yourself going to a certain petrol station and the petrol pump attendant comes out and he gives you a book and then that's the solution to your problems. And so you drive to the petrol station in real life because it's one that you imagined in your dream, or at least you think you did. And then there is a petrol pump attendant and he does give you a book, but the book is the Bible. You sit in the car and you become a Christian. These, I mean, there are books. I mean, if you come find me later, I can actually show you the books. You can read these stories for yourselves. But that's the sort of thing that God is doing in the world to reach unreached people. But the main thrust of the Bible is that we've got to go. We have to go to these nations and uh, do like Andy did. Andy was, as you can tell, born in Cyprus, lived in Britain, went and lived in Turkey. 80 million Muslims went and lived in Turkey 
and planted a church there. That's the sort of thing we need to do. Great question. Okay, we've got five minutes. Let's have a few more. Yeah, go for it. Um, thank you very much for your talk. That was really good. Um, I've got two things. So first of all, what would you say to someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of God? So doesn't believe that God ever suffered. So for example, a Muslim or um, an atheist, what would, what would you say to them? Okay, two good questions. Um, to take the second one, that's oh, the, that... the, the second one, the atheist, that's the easier because on atheism, this question is a non-question. On atheism, nothing actually bad has happened. There is no God. There would be no expectation of good things happening. All sorts of random, awful, terrible things happen, but on atheism, we can't call them terrible. On atheism, it's just stuff. On atheism, it's, I don't know, uh, a car drives down a road, and runs over a deer, a, tr- a car drives round the, down the road and runs over a human being. On atheism, who says that anything bad has happened? It's just stuff that happens. Um, on the, the, just remind me of your first, the first point before you came to the atheist. That was all one question. Yeah, the, so the first thing you mentioned before you mentioned the atheist oh, was... Um, Muslims. What would I say to a Muslim? Yes, yeah, so okay, who so, believes that Jesus was a prophet but not the yeah. son of God. So... Uh, at the end of the day, this wouldn't be the first thing that I say to a Muslim. But at the end of the day, for the benefit of everybody in the room in the seminar, going away from it, there is a fundamental question that we will have to come to in the end. Every historian, every professor of history, at every university in the world, all believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical person. And... The fact, the one fact upon which the greatest number of secular historians are agreed is that Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion. That is the main thing that secular historians know about Jesus. In the Quran, there are a group of Jews at Medina who say that they claim that the Jews at Medina are claiming that they've killed the Messiah Jesus, but the Quran contradicts that boast, saying, assuredly, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. They were under the illusion that they had. So I'm quoting them from the Quran here. The Quran explicitly says that Jesus was neither crucified and that he wasn't killed. So either most historians are correct, Jesus of Nazareth really died on the cross, Or, the Quran is correct and Jesus didn't die on the cross. It cannot be that both of those things are true. So at the end of the day, we have to come to the fact that the Quran is at odds with secular history. It's a source, a single source, written 600 years after the fact. And we've got loads of early sources saying that Jesus did die on the cross. Not just biblical sources, but sources outside of the Bible which say that Jesus died on the cross. So we've got to get to that eventually, and that's going to be the nub of the matter. It's a great question. Okay, we're going to have one more. Last one, and then after the seminar has ended, I will come and stand right down here. If you do want to ask any more questions, come and talk to me if you'd like to. Let's go for the last question. Go for it, shoot. Is there a simple way to explain that God and suffering both exist? Is there a simple way? I think the simplest response I would give 
is if somebody's suffering, I'd say, I don't really know, I can't relate to your suffering, but I imagine it's really, really difficult. All I can say as a Christian is that God hasn't just folded his arms and looked at suffering and thought, well, you know, that's terrible for them. But that God has actually, if Christianity is true, and it's a big if, <laughs> there really is a God in three persons, and one of these three persons came to earth and suffered with us, then at least that person you're talking to would walk away thinking, okay, so in this Christianity religion, unlike some of the other religions I've heard about, this is the unique thing, and frankly, this would appall. This would disgust a Muslim. We have a suffering God. We have a crucified God. It's not an answer to the question of suffering, but at least we have a God who can relate to what we're going through. That's a great question. So, you guys have been very attentive. God bless you. Um, see you next time. God bless you. Thanks so much.